Man, you are so lucky. You've got the best life. That's what people used to say to Scott Neeson. Scott shared his story in an anthology called The Life of Meaning. Scott did have everything. He had a five-bedroom house worth millions, a yacht, a sports car, and he enjoyed traveling the globe first class. He said, I sort of enjoyed it, but I wasn't particularly happy. There was something always eating away at me. I was always just a wee bit discontent. He was at the top of his career in Hollywood. He had been president already of 20th Century Fox International before moving to a senior job at Sony. One day, he was on vacation backpacking in Cambodia when he came across some children begging in the streets. They were just begging for a handout and trolling through the garbage dumps, seeking little scraps of trash that they might be able to resell for just a little bit of money to buy food. And this experience of the children so hungry in Cambodia gripped him. He began flying back and forth between California and Cambodia, engaging in what he called shuttle philanthropy, trying to keep his corporate job going while simultaneously building orphanages and schools and homes for children in Cambodia trapped in horrific poverty. And then came the moment. He was in Cambodia when his phone rang. It was his Hollywood office calling with an emergency. It seems that one of the actors that Sony had hired and sent on tour was now having a meltdown because the private jet that they had shuttling her, him around from venue to venue didn't have the star's preferred amenities on it. And the actor was throwing a tantrum and threatening to quit as the jet idled on the tarmac. And Scott said that he looked around him at the children literally starving in Cambodia, and he heard this message on the telephone, and he wanted to scream through the telephone, come down here for just one day and find out what life is all about. That was the moment when Scott decided to quit his job, sell everything, and move permanently to Cambodia and dedicate the rest of his life to lifting children up out of extreme poverty. And he was stunned when he started this project to realize that most of these children didn't need thousands of dollars spent on them to completely turn their lives around. It would just take maybe $100. And now he says, I've never been happier in my life. When I get up in the morning, I'm so eager to go to work, I can hardly wait to get there. And how many of us can really say that? Scott's life took a complete reversal. Today's scripture lesson also describes a complete reversal. It's about a rich man and a poor man who swap places. Jesus says, there was this one man who feasted sumptuously every day. He sat back in his Brooks Brothers suit, eating filet mignon and sipping an aged Cabernet. And there was this other guy whose stomach growled as he longed for just a bite or two of the leftovers from that rich man's table. And then they both died 
and they traded places. They reversed positions. Now the rich man rise in agony as the flames of Hades singe his feet and his parched mouth leaves him aching for just a sip of water. While the poor man rubs shoulders with Father Abraham as he sits back relaxing at a heavenly banquet table as the angels play Mozart's symphony. One enjoyed perfect comfort, the other brutal agony, and then the tables turned. How is it that you and I are to respond to this evocative story? We are neither the richest person we know, nor are we the poorest. We are not beggars down on the plaza on the street corner, nor are we jet setters gallivanting the globe. We are not a Hollywood producer with a yacht, nor are any of us a child in Cambodia starving in the streets. No, that's not who we are. We're school teachers, we're nurses, we're lawyers, we're retirees, we're, we're accountants, we're stay-at-home moms, we're salesmen and pilots and graduate students. Oh yeah, yeah, we have enough. But we're not Bill Gates with a big foundation that can reverse the course of a disease on a particular continent. That's not us. If the story that we heard this morning simply stirs up guilt within us, because some of us have so much more than others, then the story has not done its job. And if the story only makes us shake our head and blame the rich, and we can just simply pretend that this particular story of Jesus has no impact on us. I love what one scholar said about this parable. He said, this is a parable, not a documentary. It's to make us think, to draw us in, to evoke in us some deeper awareness of the presence of God in our world and in our lives, and to ask of ourselves, who are we in a story like this? And what does this story tell us about who God is and who we might become as a child of God? The story does shine a bright light on the inequities of real life and the often stark dividing lines that separate human beings. The story not only paints a picture of the rich and of the poor, but the story also paints a picture of the gates and the chasms that too often separate people. At the beginning of the story, poor Lazarus sits outside a gate next to the rich man's home, and I can just picture him peering through that black wrought iron gate of a gated subdivision where you may not pass without proper identification Lazarus can see through the wrought iron gates where the golf course is carefully manicured and a waterfall cascades over the fake rocks providing a soothing atmosphere for the residents there. But Lazarus knows that he may not pass through that gate unless he's on the lawn mowing crew coming in. He has no credentials. Later, the rich man also notices a chasm because the gate that could have been crossed initially now grows into a wide chasm and now we see the rich man looking back at Lazarus also wanting to cross over the chasm to just ask for a little sip of Perrier to quench his thirst. 
you know it. We all know it. We know this chasm exists in our world. A recent study in Denmark examined the lives of young people between the ages of 15 and 33. And it discovered that those young people who were raised in a family in the top 20% of the wealthiest families were the least likely of all the young people to either harm themselves or to commit a violent crime. And those young people who grew up in the bottom one-fifth in the least affluent households were seven times more likely to harm themselves and 13 times more likely to commit a violent crime. The gate quickly becomes a chasm and young people struggle to traverse the distance. Now we know, I know, you know, we all know that if we went home today after church and found a starving child on our front porch, we would do absolutely everything within our power to take care of that child. We would feed the child. We would contact the authorities. We would get the child the resources that it needed to go to school and to thrive. But the problem is that today, one-fifth of our nation's children are living in poverty, that is, on less than $2 a day, and most of the time, we don't actually see them. They may not live on our street or go to our school. And it is easy for us to assume that hard work and education will lift those folks up out of poverty, but sometimes we have not seen the reality of that poverty up close and personal. 38% of the children living in India are malnourished. And 75% of the globe's children who are in dire poverty live in sub-Sahara Africa. And cruise ships do not stop there for American tourists to see the suffering. And so the chasm grows and widens. It seems that our society is woven together to keep the gates and the barriers and the chasms in place so that we do not see the faces of the poor and therefore it becomes a lot easier for people like me to neglect the poor. Wadzi, a young woman, was born in one of the world's poorest countries, the country of Zimbabwe. She was raised by a single mother and Frank Bruni told her story in a recent article. She was 12 years old when she was diagnosed with bone cancer, and after completing chemotherapy, she had most of her left leg amputated. But Wadzi was tough. She refused to go to the special needs classroom at her school. She excelled academically, and she entered into a competitive high school. And then she had an opportunity that was provided by a woman named Rebecca Mono, Rebecca was born in the United States, but married a man from Zimbabwe, and she decided that it was part of her calling to reach across the chasm that divides the rich and the poor. And so Rebecca started an organization to help bright kids from Zimbabwe fill out college applications and financial aid forms, and if they are accepted into a college abroad to help them with travel expenses to arrive in this new land and to help them with sheets and blankets for their dorm rooms. And Rebecca received seven to 800 applications each year 
for 35 spots of young people that she can help. And this year, Wadsey was one of those chosen 35. And so she came to the United States, passing the Statue of Liberty and coming into New York and entering Columbia University as a freshman. Rebecca, you see, opened wide the gate so that Wadsey had the opportunity to begin a new life. And these universities like Columbia and so many others across this nation are also opening wide the gate to those who previously had no opportunity for that kind of education. But before Rebecca could do this, before a university could do this, first comes the ability to see the one who has the need. You see, the problem in this parable is not that, that one is rich and one is poor. The problem is that Lazarus was not even noticed, was not even seen by the rich until it was too late. Once the rich man finally sees Lazarus, he longs to turn his life around. He tries to send word immediately to his five brothers to warn them against the dangers of neglecting the poor. Did you know that Lazarus is the only person in a parable in all of scripture who is ever given a name? Usually when you hear a parable, it says, a man had a vineyard, or a man had three sons, or a woman had a coin. But in this parable, we are told that the poor man had a name. His name was Lazarus, which means God helps. And the rich man finally sees that God is one who helps and that to be a person of God is to be one who bridges the chasm and helps another. So who do you think you and I are in this parable? We're not Lazarus, though sometimes we can feel gated out. We're not the rich man, though we do have more than enough. At the end of the parable, the rich man begs and grovels, please go to my brothers and warn them so that they will also not come to this place of torment. He wants to help his brothers, his five brothers, see what he failed to see. You and I, we are the brothers. And the reply from heaven comes, oh no, they've already been warned, the brothers, they've been told. They know that Moses and the prophets are always calling upon us to care for the stranger and the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the child in foster care and the homeless person. But the rich man persists, pleading for his brothers and his sisters who are still on earth, saying, well, but maybe, maybe if someone would come back from the dead, maybe if someone would rise from the dead, maybe then they would see. And Luke knows what you and I know, that someone did rise, Jesus rose, so that you and I could see.